Hey everybody, this is Ruben, and you're listening to Amazing Stories. Eye of the Cricket by James Salis, read by Ray Shell. We're in New Orleans in 1997, long before the devastation wrought by Hurricane Katrina in 2005. The storm came in over the lake, bowing the shaggy heads of young trees and snapping branches off the old, blowing out a metairie where the white folks live. In my own backyard, a hundred-year-old water oak at last gave in, splitting in half as though a broadsword had struck it, opening like a book. Astonishingly, what had begun as a letter to an old friend, to Vicky in Paris, had become the opening pages of a novel, the first real writing I'd done in over four years, though a novel not so much new as reimagined. I paused a moment, sipped at bourbon. It was midnight, it was raining. I glanced out the window and went on. Life is cruel, old friend, n'est-ce pas? His shoulders rose and fell in that peculiar shrug. Only the French, even Louisiana's long relocated French, seemed able to bring off. Boudlow had come to tell me that my son was dead, needlessly, stupidly dead, though in fact there had been no need to tell me. I had known from the way he entered, his paws in the doorway, lights playing its broad fingers on the bar, what message he brought. Probably I had known all along. Again, he shrugged. We drank. It wasn't bourbon in my glass, but non-alcoholic beer, Sharps. Four years since I'd done much real writing. Four years since I'd had a drink. Somewhere along the way, a lot earlier than I wanted to think about, alcohol's smile had become a grin, then just bared teeth. Whole chunks of my life had fallen into that maw. Friends, intentions, memories, years. The phone rang. I read the last line or two, keyed in Alt F and S, and leaned over to turn down the volume on Sunhouse's Death Letter Blues. She a good old gal gonna lay there to judgment day. The computer churred briefly to itself. I'm sorry to bother you at this hour. A voice that sounded like a lot of my students, young, not from New Orleans or the South, reluctant to release the ends of words. We're trying to reach a Mr. Lewis Griffin, the author. This is Lou. What can I do for you? Excuse me, sir. You're the one who wrote The Old Man? I'm afraid so. But it had gone permanently out of print, like many of our civil liberties sometime during the Reagan-Bush dynasties. All right, this is kind of complicated. I waited. Mr. Griffin, my name is Craig Parker. I'm a fourth-year medical student currently assigned to the emergency room at University Hospital. Listen, this may be really off the wall, but we have a guy down here in Trauma 1. A garbage truck backed over him. Driver says none of them ever even saw him. He'd already been beat up pretty bad, left there in the alley, the police figure. This someone I know. He told you to call me. No, sir, he's not able to tell us anything. Then I don't think I understand. Yes, sir. Excuse me a moment, sir. 
Someone close by him spoke insistently. He responded, listened, responded again. Then he was back. Mr. Griffin, can I call you right back? Two minutes tops. Sure. It was closer to twenty. I sat watching the cursor blink on the screen before me. Checked out the spider's catch. Listened to Blind Willie, Robert and Lonnie Johnson, Blues Night on WWOZ. I thought about Buster Robinson, dead, what, ten, twelve years now, singing the refrain of going back to Florida in a club on Dryades when a bullet meant for someone else dissected his aorta and left him suspended forever on the seventh. I'd learned a lot from Buster, a lot about the blues. Later on, more important things. I do apologize, the young man Parker said when he rang back. Here's what I called about. The guy I told you got run over, worked over before that, was brought in with no name or ID, nothing. But afterwards, one of the nurses thought to look through his clothes piled in the corner and found a paperback book in his back pocket. The old man? Yes, sir. There's an inscription on the title page. To David and your signature. Two hands. One a terror. Another of hope tore at my heart. Can you tell me what your patient looks like? Afro-American male, probably late twenties, six feet or so, I'd say, maybe just over, and lean. Athletic build, brown eyes, hair cut short, clothes ill-fitting, much used, but clean, not too far in the past. From one of the churches or missions, maybe. I reached out to shut the computer off. Would it be possible for you to come down here and have a look, Mr. Griffin? Tell us if you know him. All right, I said. I finished my glass of sharps, looking out at the nebula, a spider web floating aslant in the darkness, then at the photo on the wall across from the desk. It was the only thing in the room hinting towards any effort at decoration. Richard Garces had given it to me, a snapshot he'd taken of Laverne when they worked together at Fuchsia Woman's Shelter a month or so before she died. She'd stuck her head in the door to ask a question about one of his clients and been trapped there forever, smiling and at the same time instinctively trying to turn her head away. Richard's lover, Eugene, successful fashion photographer by trade, starving fine art photographer by inclination, had cropped and enlarged the snapshot. Laverne and I had met when we were both little more than children and had gone on chipping away, sometimes together, sometimes apart, most of our lives. No one had been more important to me. My life was inexorably linked with hers, and yet... There was no one to whom I had been less kind, no one among the many I had hurt whom I'd hurt more. Once Vern said to me, We're just alike that way, Lou. Neither of us is ever going to have anyone permanent, anyone who'll go the long haul, who cares that much. But she was wrong. In the last years of her life, years during which for the most part I never saw her, she got off the streets. She educated herself, became a counselor and the quietest sort of hero, helping retrieve others' lives even as she ransomed her own. She fell deeply in love, married, and was on her way to reuniting with lost daughter Alouette when a stroke struck the last blow at the marble. 
by way of saying farewell and the many thank yous I'd never had time for, I searched out and found Alouette. But after a time, she, like so many others, had gone away. Gone away as had David, my own son, into the darkness that surrounds us all. It occurred to me now that Laverne may well have been the finest person I've known. Oh, baby, I'm tired of crying over you. Leaving, I turned off lights, threw the switch to shut down power to the slave quarters, stopped off in the kitchen to open a can of tuna with egg bits for Bat the Cat and have a glass of water from the tap, then walked three doors down to where, as usual, the bright green DeVille taxi sat out front. Father home? I asked a young man who came to the door. Rap's heavy, chopped, beaten, nervous legato lyrics filled the room behind him. Yeah, he said. Think I might speak to him, Raymond? That possible? Don't see why not. Norm Marcus appeared behind him, peering out. He wore baggy nylon pants, a loose-zipped sweatshirt, shower cap. Lou, it's been a while. Cal and me, we're just sitting down to breakfast. I never had been able to figure when this family slept, what kind of rhythm they were on. Why don't you come on in and join us? There's plenty of food, and we can always find an extra chair somewheres. Thanks, Norm. Some other time soon. I promise. You need a ride. Afraid so, but look, you're about to eat. No problem, Lewis. Just wish we'd see some time when you could stay a few minutes. Where are we going? From his couch, Raymond carefully ignored our departure. I apologize for taking you away from your family and your dinner, Norm. I said as we turned on to St. Charles, but it's important. You wouldn't ask otherwise. He took Jackson to Simon Boulevard, turned on the Padras. The hospital was surrounded by stretches of vacant lots behind chain-link fencing. As he cut between two of them, I said, I think my son's in the ER. He nodded. Hurt bad? I told him I didn't know. Neither of us said anything else until we pulled in at the hospital. You want me to come inside with you, man, or wait out here? I shook my head, but thanks. Anything I can do, you let me know. I will. Tough, huh? I started away when he called out. Lewis? Put a closed hand to his ear. Call me. Well, I wish I was in One might have expected to see Craig Parker with his elegantly understated clothes, blonde hair, and strong features in the pages of a fashion catalog rather more than in this chaotic, bloody, antiquated ER. 
Yet, surrounded by junkies and drunks, gunshot wounds, knifings, crushed limbs, and cardiacs, he seemed strangely at home here, calm and in control. Come with me, please, Mr. Griffin. We went down a hallway straight and narrow as a cannon. Something I need to tell you. Bear right here, sir. Shortly after we spoke, the patient arrested. He came back pretty quickly, but whenever the bottom drops out like that, it's a tremendous shock to the system. We put him on a respirator, chiefly to take some of the strain off his heart. It... I know, Dr. Parker. I've been through this before. Searching for Laverne's daughter, Alouette. First, I had found her premature baby on a ventilator in a neonatal intensive care unit up in Mississippi. Alouette herself had been on one for a while. He nodded. I wanted you to be prepared. Most people aren't. Here's the book before I forget. He pulled it from one bulging side pocket of his lab coat. The cover was all but torn away, mended top and bottom with scotch tape. Cover, spine, pages, all were filthy, mottled with a decade and a half of spills. I hadn't seen a copy in years, but... Holding it now, I remembered, with a physical lurch of memory and an instinctive motion to save myself as though about to fall from a precipice the day I sat writing the final chapter. He's in here, Mr. Griffin. Through the open door, I saw several people standing over a gurney. On it lay a nude, catheterized young man. One of the workers was between us, and I couldn't see the young man's face. A bright green ventilator stood by the wall, squeezing air into him through plastic tubes that danced with each respiration. Other, smaller tubes snaked down from poles hung with bags of saline and medication. Tracings of his heartbeat, respiratory pattern, and blood pressure stuttered across the screen of a monitor overhead. I looked around, back along the corridor. There were windows far away at its end, Lots of windows. Rain washed down them all. was Tuesday. The day before, our tenth straight day of rain, I made it to Martin European Novel almost on time and, standing in the doorway soaked in a drip, was surprised to find the room filled with students. Water boiled up everywhere out of the canals and drainage system. Large animals, small cars, and children were being swept away, and still these kids showed up to talk about literature. I remember a musician friend, a guitarist, telling me he got gigs mostly just because he made them, because he always showed up. That was pretty much how I'd wind up teaching English lit. Who's taking modern European novel this semester with Adams off in Berlin? The chair asked at a department curriculum meeting. And someone says, how about Griffin over in Romance Languages? He's a novelist. Next thing I know, I find myself on temporary trade like a ball player. How much of our life occurs simply because we don't step backwards fast enough? Today, we were discussing the Nighttown sequence from Ulysses. 
In past weeks, I had sketched out for them the basic structure of the novel and stood by, I hoped, as they discovered that not only was the book fun to read, it was actually funny. No one had ever told us that before, Mr. Griffin. Probably not. Ulysses was offered up to them, to us all, as some kind of intimidating monolith like those giant gates in King Kong. You had to beat on the drums and chant the right formulas before you dare let that beast of literature loose. The sequence is phantasmagoric, equal parts dream or nightmare and drunken carousing. Here, more than anything else, it resembles Beckett's work. Like Beckett's, it's about nothing and at the same time about everything. All the novel's characters and relationships, all the novel's figures, one might even say the whole of civilization. Prefiguring Finnegan's Wake? Mrs. Mara, in the front row, and a dinner miniskirt today. Exactly. In the Nighttown sequence, all these characters and relationships, real, mythic, imaginary, reappear, maybe resurface is the best way to put it, in various transfigurations. But why? said Kyle Skillman limp blonde hair, face forever red as though recently scrubbed, his aching for a world where everything fit could break your heart. I found myself wondering, not for the first time, if he might be in some kind of a emotional trouble. Anyone want to answer Mr. Skillman's question? I looked around the room. Eyes sank to the floor as though on counterweights. Mrs. Myra? Obviously dreams are a kind of art. Our most personal expression, one of the ways we make sense of our world. Or, in a sense at least, recreate it, yes. Mrs. Mara swung her leg at all of us in approval. I, for one, beamed at our collective brilliance, but Skillman still looked worried, loose pieces everywhere. Let's look then at this most telling of resurfacings from the Nighttown sequence, the sudden appearance of Bloom's dead son, which ends it. Against the dark wall, a figure appears slowly. A fairy boy of eleven, a changeling, kidnapped, dressed in an eating suit with glass shoes and a little bronze helmet, holding a book in his hand. He reads from right to left, inaudibly, smiling, kissing the page. And so our discussion continued for most of the hour, rain slamming down from outside, pools of water from umbrellas flowing into one another. Sally Mara helping urge reluctant students from point to point like some fine intellectual sheepdog. Going back in Florida, where you got to plow, you got to hold. Going back in Florida. Where you gotta plow, you gotta hold. You gotta do one of the two. Cause you know somebody's gotta go. Mr. Griffin, someone said as I stepped into the hall, you have a minute? Older than most of them. Hair cut close, black suit giving him a vaguely Muslim look. Collarless white shirt buttoned to his neck, left hand curved around a history text. He held out the right one. Sam Delaney, you're not one of my students. No, sir, though I would be if my schedule weren't so tight. I'm pre-law. 
we went down the stairs and into the storage room the school insisted upon calling my office. So what can I do for you, Mr. Delaney? I waved them into the chair across from the desk. I heard a lot about you, Mr. Griffin. You're kind of a hero to some of the students, you know. They look up to you. I had no idea what to say to that, so I kept quiet. I was born across from the Desire Projects. First 16 years of my life, I looked out the window. That's all I saw. Never guessed the world could be any different. Hard to relate to professors with their tenure and Volvos and their nice, safe homes out in Metairie. But you're not like them. You're still out there. Always have been. Not for a long time. He shook his head. I read your books. Some of them are hard to find. Some of them probably ought to be a lot harder. They tell the truth, Mr. Griffin. That's important. Yeah, I used to think so, too. That they tell the truth or that it's important? Both. I looked out my so-called window, a sliver of glass set sideways just inches below the seven-foot ceiling. Rain had slowed to a drizzle. There was even a hint of sunlight. You want to get some coffee? I'm from New Orleans, Mr. Griffin. I'm always ready for coffee. We crossed from the campus to a corner grocer that had four-seater picnic benches set up in the back half of the store, and from ten till they ran out, served some of the best roast beef po'boys, jambalaya, and gumbo in town. We got coffee in thick-walled mugs and snagged the table just as two business types, coatless but wearing short-sleeved blue dress shirts and ties, were getting up. So just what is it I can do for you, I said as Delaney sat across from me. You find people? Sometimes, yes, but as I told him earlier, not for a long time now. I'd let teaching become my life, drifted into it because the currents were flowing that way. I take care of my family, Delaney said. Financially, I mean. My father disappeared when I was four. The other kids' fathers, I had one half-brother, 15, two sisters, 11 and 8. They disappeared a lot faster. I look out for them all. A familiar story, though never one the conservative axis with this one-size-fits-all family values wanted to hear. The poor, disadvantaged, and discarded are an awful lot of trouble, if only they behave. And your mother? She's still with us, alive, I mean. It's been hard for her. She's used up. Yeah, I guess that says it all right. She the one you want to see me about? He shook his head. My brother, he said. Hey, brother, really? Sean, like John with a shoe? He took a mouthful of coffee, held it a moment, swallowed. One day last week, Thursday, Sean leaves for school, same as every morning, scooting out the house half-dressed and already half an hour late. After school, he's scheduled for the four to eight, so no one's looking for him till late. Where does he work? Donut shop up by the hospital. Toro? Yeah. And sometimes one of his friends would drop by the store by the time he got off, and they'd hang out for a while, so it might be 10, 11 before he showed up home. But that night, 10 comes and goes. Mama's home by then. I stay with the girls while she's at work. But we still just figure Sean will be alone in a minute. Next morning, couldn't have been later than 6, not even light outside. Mama's at my door with the girls. Sean was a no-show. Right. 
Mama fixes us all breakfast, and when Sean's school opens up at eight, I go down there. Not only wasn't Sean in class the day before, I find out, but he hadn't been there for two, three months. And you didn't notify anyone, I say? We just figured he dropped out, the teacher told me. He's 15, I tell her. Yeah, I know, she says. Lots of them don't last near that long. Have you talked to his friends? I tried. Turns out the ones I knew, kids I remembered being his friends, he hadn't had much to do with them or they with him for a long time. He must have others, but I haven't found them. Not a good sign. People change habits and friends like that. Usually it means a lot more is changing. Yes, sir. I know. I'll need the name of his school. Kids you already talked to, his teachers, anybody you know who works with them, usual hangouts, particular interests. He took a manila envelope out of the book and passed it across to me. The photo inside showed a light-skinned, smallish, compactly built young man with prominent features and hair clipped almost to his scalp. Could easily be in his twenties. The rest was details, names, lists, nouns with no verbs. I slid everything back into the envelope. Phone numbers were on the outside, his own rented room, his mother's apartment, the university library where he worked most evenings. I'll do what I can, I said. I appreciate this, Mr. Griffin. Don't expect too much, and what there is is likely to be bad. That afternoon, I visited his half-brother's school, his mother at work, and the donut shop. The kid behind the counter, with a shock of hair like carrot top shooting off his head and wearing a dough-smeared assistant manager tag, confirmed that Sean Delaney had failed to show up for work last Thursday. He'd also missed his shift on Friday and again on Sunday, nor had he called in any of those times. Sean's homeroom teacher, a Miss Camille Brown, couldn't be more specific about when Sean had stopped attending school. I'm sorry, she kept saying. I believed her sorrow. She was in her early 20s. Couldn't have been at this for more than a few years. Already she looked about her as though unable to remember how she got here or exactly where here was. Her eyes and voice were effectless, like those of young soldiers. At Rightway Dry Cleaners on Barone, the boy's mother, Rachel Lee Baldwin, reiterated what Sam Delaney had told me, admitted that Sean hadn't been talking to her much these days when she did see him, and said that she had to get back to work. She, too, had a vague, shell-shocked look about her. That night after dinner at Dunbar's, I walked down Carondelet into town and prowled the quarter a while before settling in at the Napoleon house. I sat there watching those around me, those walking by past the French doors that opened one wall of the bar to the sidewalk outside, and thinking about a passage from Ulysses. The sadness, the dark in Dublin late at night, Joyce wrote, is swinging. People who do not want to go home, who will not go home, who have not got a home, lurch and stagger in the gloom, moths without a candle. About nine, an off-duty cop came in. We got to talking about the murder rate and the new mayor, wondering if the city would ever haul itself back upright. Hours later, 
though I'd only had coffee and club soda, I lurched and staggered home myself. Thank you for listening, and don't forget to join us tomorrow for yet another amazing story.